Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Hello and welcome to the show. Today on the podcast, our guest is Ron Rohde. He is an attorney based in Dallas, focusing on real estate. He's also an investor. So we talk about his uh, his journey, how he started investing when he was very young with his parents and kind of learning the ropes there with single family and moving to industrial. We talk a lot about industrial uh, investments and how they're putting together joint ventures and going to buy these deals in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So we get into some of the numbers and the nitty gritty on how those projects work, their triple net uh, deals, how they structure the capital, structure the, the management and everything else. So that was really interesting. I enjoyed learning about that. And we talk about some of the legal side as well. They help clients with uh, commercial real estate deals. And so uh, we, we dive into some of that as well. So I think you're going to enjoy the conversation with Mr. Rohde. Before we jump into that, if you are uh, not seeing the investment deals come out from our company, from DJE, and you'd like to, you can register at djetexas.com, and there's a link in this show description. And secondly, if you are an aspiring multifamily operator and you want to learn how to do that business as a general partner, we put together apartmenteducators.com as a, as a resource for you to do that. There's a free eight-part video series that I teach at apartmenteducators.com, also linked in the show notes. Okay, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Mr. Ron Rohde. Here we go. Ron, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you? Nice to see you. Living the dream. Living the dream. Yes, I love it. Very good. Well, uh, you're, you're our neighbor to the north here up in uh, Dallas, Texas, so we could talk about Texas real estate all all day here, but let's get started with with some of your backstory for folks that haven't met you. Uh, how did you get into law? How did you get into real estate? What's your what's your background? Yeah, so uh, great great to be here. Thanks, Devin, for having me on the show. Um, I grew up in North Texas, so you know I'd say I'm from here. Uh, my parents have always been involved in real estate, um, whether they own their own businesses, um, broker. Uh, always had rental properties. So for me growing up, um, went to college in New York, went to Cornell, worked law school in Florida, but I always knew that Texas wanted to be my home. And once I started working, you know, I always thought it was natural. Yes, you put some money in 401k, you, you put, sa- put some in savings, but you also pick up a rental property because I just thought that was the thing you did. Yeah. Um, fast forward a couple of years, you know, I'm, I'm married, I have a couple partners and my brother had six doors, uh, residential SFR, and it just gets too much, even with property management. Um, it's too many questions, lease renewals. You know, I felt like it was a roof and a water heater every other month. So I sold everything, which I thought was kind of at a peak of the, the, the Texas market, uh, made a great return. And then I redeployed everything into industrial triple net. So that's, that's, you know, my investment journey. Maybe I should have put it into multifamily. Maybe I, I'd, I'd be a little bit better position, but really happy with the industrial stuff, you know, longer lease terms, triple net. So the tenants don't bother me. Um, kind of capped upside, I would say, because it's triple net, the lease is long-term, but it's also a capped downside where your expenses, you pass through to the tenant, property taxes, insurance, management, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that, that fit my lifestyle at the time, right? Because what I was doing was getting married, having, we've got two small kids starting a law firm. I do a commercial real estate transactional law firm for my day job. 
And it really just was a better fit for my, my life at the time. So now, you know, we've got a little shop up here helping clients uh, maximize their return in commercial real estate. So we do the PSAs, loan document review, leases, um, that sort of thing, title and survey objections. So that's my very long intro to who I am. I, I, I live, breathe and eat commercial real estate. Um, I love it. Yeah, thank you. And I like the part of, of the um, investments just kind of being natural growing up. I think, you know, I was introduced to single family rentals later in life in my 30s. And I just remember thinking, why, why didn't anybody show me this in high school? I would have done so many of these deals. Uh, but better late than never. And, uh, you know, that's kind of we've all got our journey. Um, did you want to focus on real estate when you're going to law school? I did not have the same passion for it, I think, um, that I do now. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, when I was growing up, I, I probably would have traded you, you. Maybe you would have wanted my experience because I was that kid that when I turned 16, my parents were like, great. Okay, we'll buy you a new car. Great. I was really excited. And they said, but here's a set of keys. Go take it to this property. Go give it to this tenant. Go go to this vacant house and meet the plumber and let him in. And, oh, run these documents over to title, right? This is pre-internet kind of day, run these hand-signed documents over to a title company. And that was my, you know, Saturday afternoon. I was like, wow, this is not quite what I envisioned of having my own car, but um, yeah, it, it was, it was fantastic, right? This is pre-cell phone days. I think, I think I may have had a, a Nokia with snake on it. I remember that. Mostly, I remember I that just, phone. Yeah. I would have to talk to the people, right? I'm, I'm just a kid, but I would sit there. And if you've ever been on site with a plumber, they're very chatty people. So they would just talk to you and they'd say, Hey, you know, oh yeah, you, you're their kids. Oh, your parents are great. They always pay me on time. They never cut my bill and I'm always fair with them and blah, blah, blah. And he was telling me what kind of work he was doing. But um, yeah, I, I think that ex experience was a little bit too strong. It, it kind of shied me away. I was, uh, you know, much more interested in philosophy and economics and things I studied kind of just at a, a high level um, academically. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't really until I started working and I got to work with these investors and I got to see the settlement statements, right? Uh, when I was at a firm, you, you work with the people when they buy it, you help them manage the property, leasing, cities, condemnation, all that stuff, compliance. And then you help them sell it. And you're like, holy cow, how much money did you put in? Uh, investors put in this and you held it for how many years and now you're selling for this and, and our line item, you know, the legal is, is a nice chunk, but it's tiny compared to the right. owner. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so that's what kind of uh, reignited, I guess, more of a passion for real estate was seeing the highest and best use of, of my time, my contribution to society uh, was to, you know, assemble and, and, and build and buy and build commercial real estate. Outstanding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've been cautious with my children not to put them in too much of the physical labor early on. Because I see that I see a lot of parents doing that, friends of mine even that grew up with it, where they have a bad taste in their mouth from doing the, the grunt work when they were kids, which is only natural. You got to put your kids to work. Um, interesting dynamic, though. Well, let's talk about the industrial triple net. Um, what was your introduction to, to that asset class and how do you, how do you structure those deals now? Is it just you, do you have partners syndicated? What, what size are you going after that? that yeah. 
Absolutely. So um, this kind of dovetails. I, I, I give a lot of, I would say, YouTube podcast type things. And, and people ask, that's a common topic is how do I raise money? And, mm-hmm. or how do I take down a commercial building? And, and it's kind of like a three phase, maybe four steps. I would say at the very simple and, and uh, easiest way is single member, right? So husband and wife, you put down $400,000, $800,000. You can, you can buy it in an LLC, single member. That's the easiest way with no other partners. But instead of jumping all the way to like a Reg D uh, 506 offering, which is very common when you talk about syndicators or LPs, GPs, that's very common um, in terms of an SEC securities exempt offering. Uh, but there's a middle step, which is JVing, uh, which is kind of just partners. That's the step that I'm in right now, um, where it's just a couple of guys, you know, like two or three other partners, four partners, um, and we'll go in and buy a building. Um, they're typically in the, I would say two to 9 million range, mm-hmm. um, where we'll just put up our own money. We're all, this is all recourse debt, um, local banks. So we'll, we'll, uh, personally guarantee it. Um, we have about a hundred thousand square feet of industrial net lease, all triple net in DFW, um, closing on one next week. Um, so hopefully I can update this with that one, but I'm pretty excited about that. Um, a five and a half acre parcel out in Tarrant County. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a great, I guess, in-between structure where we're all active in the uh, management of the LLC. So we all email each other. We talk about things. We um, can say, Hey, you know, Devin, can you run over to the property to meet this fence guy? And I was okay. And then Ron's, you know, Hey, do you have that P and L from the bookkeeper? Yeah. Okay. Share it with the group. So that's the kind of active decision-making that joint ventures, I think can be really productive because, let's say you have a million dollar raise, you just do 300, 300, 300, boom. You just need three people to, to commit. And, and yes, they're your friends. And, and I guess you have to have a good level of trust, but that's what we found is, is better um, as a middle step. And then the next step would be again, to do a more formal uh, exempt securities offering, which is the OM, the PPM, all the subscription documents, disclaimers, yada, yada, going through that full-blown package, which I would say is appropriate when you've exhausted your own capital, which, which eventually will happen. And you've exhausted kind of friends and family, uh, which is, which is that secondary step. But the third step, paying an attorney, a securities attorney, the going rates about 15,000, you know, for raises under 5 million like that. But that's, that's that step. And, you know, even higher level, we'll be talking about maybe like an open-ended fund, um, or doing a broader parameter that's not deal specific. Um, so yeah, those are the ways to raise money to buy your next or your first deal. So. Sure, sure. And the JV uh, approach, it is a great kind of solution for that uh, for that step between a full-blown syndication and just doing a deal by yourself or with your spouse. And, and, and a JV doesn't meet the Howie test for security, right? I mean, everybody's expected to do some work in this deal, right? That's right. That's right. And at a minimum, you know, you're going to have the trust level or prima facie of, hey, you went into this. We didn't recruit you um, if you were an unknown quantity, right? Which is a lot of those LPs, those sponsors don't have a real relationship. I mean, maybe you're on my email list and we've chatted on Zoom, but they really don't know you from Adam. And if a deal goes sideways, they're not actively observing it go sideways. And so they may sue you. So you as a GP want to be protected from an LP that you don't really know. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the main distinction, but absolutely you get the bonus points for how we test and uh, we can do the uh, orchard farm analysis. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, hearing it because of all the crypto stuff where, you know, you're saying is a, is a property and everything else is security because you essentially doesn't pass the Howey test, right? So yeah, and 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 it's really interesting because the Howey test, you know, involves intent. So mm-hmm. are you are you transferring this money with the intent to increase your return based on the work of others? Right. And that's really a, a a tough question. When like look at the NFT space, the non fungible tokens, are you buying it as an investment, expecting it to appreciate based on the work of other people? like other crypto ICOs had this problem because they were touting, they were almost advertising 25%, 30% returns. I'm like, well, how, what, what is right. generating that return? And if you as an investor are not at expected or asked to do anything to generate that return, it's a security. And yeah. on a very simple high level analysis, I would agree with that. But on the flip side, you know, the utility is just not quite there. So if you are buying any of these crypto documents for utility, well, five years from now, if, if you bought PayPal money, nobody has, that's not an investment. Even if the right. PayPal money appreciated, they'd say, no, PayPal is accepted everywhere. It's like a Visa, you know, bucks. Um, but there's no problem with PayPal, but that's only a function of the market catching up after the fact versus if you were an early PayPal user, you, you, you know, you absolutely could have made the argument, well, putting money in PayPal, expecting it to appreciate is not buying it for utility because it's only accepted at five, five restaurants. Right. right. So yeah, we could, we could do a whole episode on, uh, on, on crypto and, and kind of that direction, but, um, the very interested, you know, I, I've been a GPU miner, um, Okay. Back in 2017. So yeah. I had about 30 1080 TIs. If, if that means anything to you, sure. fellow nerds rejoice. Yeah. But um, I was, I was doing that um, GPU stuff, mined a bunch of Ethereum, um, sold all my equipment at a profit, which hmm. was unheard of for a depreciating asset. Sure. But, um, still um, I accept payment from clients in, in crypto and I'm still holding a decent amount. So Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Selling, that's like selling a used car in Q1 of 2022 and making a profit. You're like, something is wrong here. We, uh, we did that too. My wife and I, we had three cars and when we bought a new Lexus a couple of years ago, and then when somebody wanted to pay the exact same price that we paid with 30,000 miles on it, my wife was like, sure, sell it. We don't need it. And <laughs> I thought right. it was a good deal. We could have held out and sold for a profit off of a brand new car, which is Never again, never again. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. Well, when you look work with your clients and you see them putting together teams, what, what are some, or you know, whether it's a JV or whether it's just a simple partnership or whether it's full-blown syndication with, you know, 30 LP investors or whatever the case is, what do you, are there some common uh, traits that you see in operators that, that help them be successful? You know, there's probably some aspiring operators listening or some aspiring LPs listening. What do you see that that makes uh, makes these teams work? Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I've I've we mentioned before. You know, what is a really fun part of my job is as I get to work with clients um, pre property due diligence, multiple LOIs. You know, you never see all the grunt work, eight, 10, 9, 15 LOIs submitted, sure, no closings. Then you see the deal that they did close, 
Then I work with them on the property and then we exit. Um, but you don't see that stuff, right? They just like to cut and paste the flashy. We bought a deal. We exited a deal. Great job. Yeah. The, the common thread is really the persistence. Consistency is key um, in forcing yourself to look at deals every day, um, to underwrite them, you know, what you'll be willing to pay, um, and then following up and seeing kind of what they traded for and, and what they what they sell. Um, but my number one advice uh, is just really know your own goals, because mm. to your point, whatever level you're going to start out as an operator or a GP or, or even just an LP, know what your goals are, know what your internal risk tolerances are and be true to yourself, right? Don't, don't create a goal of, I want 50 million in assets in five years. If you don't have the time or the capital or the, the resources to commit to that every day until you, till you get there. Because I think you're just kind of setting yourself up for disappointment and your team members are not going to be right-sized for that goal, right? So instead of 50 million, maybe you need 10 million and your CPA and your, you know, your, your lawyer, your, um, your broker and your lender are all going to be very different. If you tell a broker, Hey, I haven't done a deal or I've done one 16 unit before. Now I want to own 50 million. I don't know how seriously they're going to take you until you have a track record. But if you already closed a, a $2 million deal and, and you're running a multifamily, you say, hey, I, now I want to buy a $5 million. Now I want to buy a $7 million deal. Those brokers will take you seriously. I, th I think you're pretty credible going from a two to a five or a two to a seven. Um, but you're not going to have the same credibility going from a two to a 15 or a $20 million deal, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It, it, it is possible to, to scale up in this business. And I think, you know, with, with caution, obviously there's stories of people scaling too fast, countless stories. Uh, and that sometimes doesn't end well, but uh, you're right. It's, it's kind of one foot in front of the other. There's so many stories of people that started with single family houses like you or like me and have scaled this up over time, reasonably just kind of going for the next slightly bigger deal and, Five years later, you're you're buying uh, you're buying bigger projects, and it's pretty common. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and I don't mean to necessarily discourage people from having sure. high goals, but you have to understand the steps to get there. Yeah, and if you the want systems. to grow, you, yeah, exactly. If you yeah. want to grow and be taking down those ten million dollar deals one a year or whatever, then what are the steps to get there? Because right. you're you're taking big leaps, and then you have to do big leaps constantly, and that's okay. That that's totally fine. You know. Um, but just know what the steps are to get there. Cause I find the most successful people are the ones that know what they want. They know what their own measurables are right? and they can do it and they stick to it. And it's, you know, real estate is a long-term game. Um, I love this quote. I say it all the time, play long-term games with long-term people. Yeah. Um, and that's what you're really setting yourself up for because I can't think of any worthwhile goal sub, sub three years, you know, sub one year. To you and me, I'm like a, a year, we're going to blink and we're already going to be there. We're not going to have time to adjust a goal for a one-year goal. We mm -hmm. need to think in terms of three, five, 10 years, 20 years, where, where do I want to be in 20 years um, and start making decisions for 20 years in the future. And again, building those relationships with people that are, I would say, hopefully as committed uh, to that 20-year goal as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I really like the idea of having a, a, a goal and a metric 
reverse engineering it and sticking with it. I think that's, I, honestly, I think that most people uh, that are not doing what they want to be doing with their business are missing is mm-hmm. a clear outcome. And how do you, how do you know when you're winning or off track? And then it's almost maddening. You set the goal, you got to stick, you got to stick with it, you know, and, 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 and that's tough to do over a multi-year horizon. Uh, but it's really kind of the key to the key to the whole thing. And by doing that, it's going to allow you to understand where you're going to have to allocate resources, who's going to have to be on the team, how much capital you need. I mean, the, the whole thing, you can go build it, but you've really got to have a goal, reverse engineer it, and then stay the course. And for if you're a solopreneur or you're just getting started doing this, it can be hard to hard to stay the course. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to. I don't want to belittle, I think it's simple, but it's difficult. Yes. So the steps yes. are easy individually in a vacuum, but combine it with life and, and a job and, and, you know, a house and kids and dog, all that stuff. I, I get it. But the difference between the people that are successful is who can stick with it for, for years or for six months every day, um, devouring information until you can act and then, and then taking action you know, again, it's not buying a deal every month or putting something under contract, but it's looking at deals, talking to people, knowing the market, figuring out who's ready to buy a distressed multifamily. You know, maybe that's a good segue uh, for what we see coming in 2022. Yeah, let's talk about that. So we're, we're talking right now, middle of 2022, the Fed has gotten aggressive in this kind of first half of the year on uh, raising the Fed funds rate. And we've seen all kinds of impacts to the economy. We don't know how far we are into this thing, but you know, you're, you're seeing, you're seeing deals, you're seeing your clients impacted. What's the kind of current state of the market from your perspective? Yeah, I I think it's really, um, it's one of those curses, I guess the uh, may you live in interesting times. Well, guys, we got them. We, we, We We had near zero interest rates for a very long time. But we're now living in interesting times. There's a lot of volatility. Um, we're seeing concerns of recession. My my biggest takeaway is that the recession is here. It's already here, but right. it is not going to be evenly distributed. Um, Texas, uh, the South, Sun Belt, those are always going to weather the recession better than some of the coasts. Uh, look at Illinois, high tax companies are leaving uh you know, Deer, John Deere uh, tractor company, they just announced they're moving their corporate, um, that big hedge fund, I guess, Citadel, um, they're moving out of Chicago. Those places in a recession combined with, with fragile markets, they're going to get hit a lot harder than places like Texas. Um, so my advice is, again, is, is you got to keep buying. You really have to keep underwriting, keep looking at deals. Yes, with higher debt costs, you underwrite a lower value, but just keep pushing them out there um, because they should be a price that you are willing to take that risk uh, heading into a recession to buy. But this recession, you know, may be shorter than we think. And if you're on the sidelines for six months, you might blink and it's, it's, it's too late. You know, there was a little dip and if you didn't buy, it's going to just keep going up again. Yeah, you've got to be able to keep your momentum somehow. We we're just having a meeting with some of the teams this morning on that. Is is now is a time in the gym where we're lifting heavy weights. It's not easy, but we got to keep training because I don't know, six months from now, 18 months from now, whatever the case is, you don't just stand on the sidelines. You've got to keep uh, getting up to bat, even if uh, it's not yielding anything. You've got to keep your momentum going through these. Yeah, it's, it's gym analogy is perfect. You know, 
when, when you first start off and, and everybody's happy and everybody's making gains, those are like the easy gains um, right. that are very visible and, and quick. But when you're still pushing the heavy weight, you're kind of building that area under the curve. There is progress. It's just not visible and it's not pretty, but it's absolutely critical to building a, a, a platform to continue to grow. Like, um, I'll say for the deal that, you know, I'm talking about this industrial, some of the conscious changes we made was lower leverage, right? We can get 80% on our industrial stuff, but we brought it back down to 60 Wow. because it's conservative, because we want to be able to cover the debt service. Um, uh, so low leverage, you know, uh, higher, we, we put a seven cap for an exit, you know, make sure we make money, which I think is unrealistic, but it's conservative. It's unlikely to happen, but it's conservative. So you pencil all those things in, does the deal still make sense? Yes. We're still making money at a seven cap with low leverage, blah, blah, blah. That makes us feel comfortable, um, to pull the trigger on something like that. But, but yeah, you've, you've always got to buy because who knows what interest rates, interest rates can go up, they can be flat or they can go down. You've always just got to learn how to keep buying in any environment. And then you don't worry. Then you don't stress, right? If you have your underwriting process, you don't get affected. You become a, a value-driven long-term investor that says, if you're buying for a 20-year hold period, you can buy anything. You just buy for value. And those are just little blips on the, on the surface. So. Yeah, that's right. As a professional investor, you don't, you're not going to wait out a five-year stretch and try to time the market. I mean, it's just not not what you do. That's the nice thing about JVs too. Is is um, you know you're not you're not gunning for some sort of a preferred return or something to a big group of investors that you're beholden to. It's it's you and a handful of buddies and kind of make the decision to go lower leverage and you know done. Decision's done. Everybody feels good about it and uh, maybe forego. Uh, some other things, but if you're long-term focused, you get a lot of flexibility. And, 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 you know, that's a big issue too, I guess my advice for operators or LPs out there when I see it and you've got some of these big platforms that are predicated on ACK fees, acquisition fees, um, renovation, budget, asset management, and then the dispo fee and the lift, that's where you get into trouble because these guys are incentivized to do deals, to, to take down right. deals, kind of regardless of the price paid, regardless of the risk to the investor's money. It's not, it's not their money, but they get those fees. Um, and there's, again, it's been going good. We've only known bull market for a very long time. So even if you were investing in 2008 and you felt that pain, a lot of people, it's kind of disappeared from their psyche. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I just caution people. I see that a lot where people bring me LP docs and they say, Hey, is this a good deal? Can you review the legal? Um, they said they're charging, you know, half a point or something like, no, it says half a point to one and a half points, you know, depending on this or, um, so there's a lot of incentives that I think can get taken into account, uh, for people that need the deal flow to live versus having partners or an investor that has your long-term uh, incentives aligned can make you enable you again to do some of those long-term. Do I want to maximize my money in five years from now or 10 years from now? What are the decisions to maximize my money in 10 years, as opposed to just trying to make income today, this year, those are very different um, motivations and, and, you know, I'll say very different outcomes. No doubt. Yeah. You got to make sure you're as an operator and an LP, 
whatever you, whatever camp you're in, or maybe you're in both, um, that the interests are aligned and that, that those things don't get too far out of whack or that's going to be, that's going to be bad news. So what do you, as an investor, you know, kind of with your investor hat on, what are you guys looking for for the next, uh, next year? You got an industrial deal on a contract here. Is that kind of your, your focus as far as deals you guys are taking down? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm a hundred percent laser in on industrial. Um, nice. We're kind of in this small niche. I would call it like the three to 9 million range is really overlooked because um, we do targeted, uh, you know, contacts to sellers that fit our criteria and, and we just reach out to them. We write up offers, um, but it's mostly mom and pop sellers. They're don't have the best rent rolls. They don't know a lot of questions. They don't know the answers, but um, I think that it's small enough uh, that the larger private equity firms don't mess with it. Again, mostly because of that handholding that we do. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, assembling that stuff into a portfolio is really attractive. So we right. can buy a couple of three, $5 million deals and sell it for 20 million. And our basis is, you know, 16. That's, right. and, and, and by virtue of, I wouldn't say doing anything, right? A little bit of rent increases along the way, but nothing substantive. We're not like buying vacant buildings and placing a tenant. We're not building new construction. All we do is clean up existing documentation and make it suitable to due diligence file and, and data room suitable for uh, institutional or even family office type buyer that says, okay, I can, I can buy from these guys because they've got folders for every single property with a phase one, clean phase one, all the surveys, all the title commitments, everything is here. Um, I can process this and, and give it a value at a lower cap rate than we're buying at. So that's our reward. And that's, that's again, what we're hundred percent laser focused, right? Sold all the SFR. I don't, I don't own any, uh, houses other than the roof over my head. Ah, good for you. I vowed to do that this year. Turns out to maybe not be the best year to do it, but, uh, I've got about, I had a dozen rentals I wanted to sell. I sold three and okay. uh, I'm committed to just powering through interest rates. Be damned. I'm getting rid of them this year <laughs> just to have it off my plate. Right. Good. Yeah. It was, um, it was nice for me. I really, yeah. I, I enjoyed that transition sure. um, because it, it kind of forces me to sink or swim, you know? It's, right. Right. You don't Who get are the tenants in the industrial? Is it like, it's like, uh, uh, you know, a small commercial blue collar type guy or who yeah. these are all existing so buildings, right? I have a great description for it. Um, I didn't come up with it. Another, uh, you know, smarter colleague than, than I, um, we, you know, buy buildings. The, our tenants are people that build and maintain the physical world. Mm. And it's a great summary of, you know, concrete pouring companies, um, uh, plumbers, electricians, you know, there's so much that goes into infrastructure, maintaining roofs and um, uh, metal supply, welders, you know, welding supply companies, right? Things that you don't think of, but yeah, blue collar, but as it relates to the physical world, those are the people that are huge demand. You, you, you hear a lot about the shortage of um, uh, blue collar workers in the US. Well, these are the people that are doing it and they're reaping the advantages, the benefits of higher rates, uh, more money, and um, they're growing. They're, they're, I don't say there's a consolidation, but for sure, the bigger players are getting bigger. Um, mm -hmm. So like regional people with, I don't know, a few hundred million in, in, uh, in revenue. They, they have audited financials, but they're not publicly traded or anything. Right. Uh, and if I say the name, 
you and San Antonio don't even, you've never heard of it, but you're like, yeah. Hey Ron, if the financials look good, they're quality uh, regional players. And I think that's who can sign a good five-year triple net uh, lease. Yep. That makes sense. So in the multifamily world, we look at rents, at least in San Antonio, you might have a dollar $1.25, a square foot rent. You might have a 50% expense ratio if you're lucky, maybe 55%. Are there standards, uh, kind of rules of thumb in the industrial world that you guys see in terms of expense ratios and, and rent per square foot? Well, so expense ratios, you know, we're less sensitive to because if we're going to go on the triple net side, we we pass it all through to the tenant. Yeah. Um, to the extent that, you know, we can put in capital improvements to make their operations of the building more efficient. I think that expense ratio stuff, that's less important as um, mm-hmm. more the class of the building, because that's going to have certain expectations uh, when a tenant moves in. So just kind of spitballing, but like if a tenant's walking a, a warehouse storage type building and they see, you know, just the halogen or halide type bulbs that are not very energy efficient, that's just going to be class C, you know, mm-hmm. he's not going to expect to pay top dollar partially because of those inefficient um, lighting, but right. those go part and parcel um, with a lower rent. But if you put the capital expenditures in to put in you know, nice T8s or, or LED something. He knows that when he walks the building, okay, this is a nice building. My energy costs are going to go down. I know I'm going to have to pay for that on the back end with higher rent. But I, I think in industrial, because those expenses are more passed through, you know, you don't have, I don't have to fight property taxes. I don't have to f- constantly hunt for the best insurance broker to get me the best uh, rates for, for premiums, for replacement policies. Um, it's really about managing consistent improvements. Um, I think I just had a conversation with somebody about this. Like, do you do a patchwork of improvements that is standalone would raise the level of the quality of the building? No, you really want to do everything in a holistic sense so mm-hmm. that you could truly raise your property from a class C to clearly class B, or if you mm-hmm. go from class B, clearly class A, um, and don't do kind of ones and twosies because right. uh, you may not get the rent premium. Although, although now, you know, I'd say you, do, you don't have to do anything. If you just make it functional, you slap it ready, you'll have people beating down your door to sign a lease. So you don't have to compete um, for tenants right now. Yeah, right now. I mean, these things fluctuate. So interesting, uh, interesting times. Well, this is this is great. I appreciate the look, Ron, into the kind of industrial world and how you guys are structuring your deals um, sounds like you're not, not bringing in a ton of investors, but if somebody wants to connect with you on the, on the law firm side, on the legal side, I mean, obviously when you're building a, a team to go do these things, legal is huge, important team member. What's a good way for somebody to connect with you there? Yeah, I, I would for sure say, you know, the, uh, the YouTube channel, uh, number one, I, I post content, um, very consistently every week, um, posting videos about industrial multifamily lending, a loan document side. Um, but otherwise, you know, the website, uh, ronaldrodylaw.com, R-O-N-A-L-D-R-O-H-D-E-L-A-W.com. Uh, plenty of emails and, and, and buttons, forms to get in touch with us. But yeah, I'd love for people to check out, check over my YouTube, um, drop a comment if you guys want more com- content in that direction. So 
Outstanding. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you just scroll through the show notes and click right through the website. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for connecting today. I really enjoyed uh, learning yeah. more about what you guys are up to. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.